Hello to the Faction Jackson Beefsticks Podcast. We hope you're ready for action because we're bringing the pain as we break down our top 10 underrated factions. But in all honesty, it's each of our own personal top five, potentially. Yeah. Pitted against each it, other. I think it's a really good uh, I think it's a really good list of actually top ten underrated factions. There's a good a good mixture of eras, of promotions, of wrestlers, and of opinions. Yes, indeed. I'm looking forward to this one. Usually the lists I'm a little bit unsure of, but as soon as we came up with this one, I'm like, ha, this is gonna be good times. It it, uh, it kind of feels like a war games, a, a huge war games with uh, two, four, six, oh, five rings, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. You're like, is he really counting a top ten to two? What? Oh, that was good. Very good. I like it. It's a late night beef sticks podcast tonight. We don't normally shoot this late. Uh, usually by now we're in bed. It's it's rough. I'm telling you what. I think even the dogs are are down for the count almost. <laughs> and we got a jam packed show for you, full of so much fun stuff. Obviously, uh, a lot of news came out again. A lot of comings and goings this week. We got our brought the top ten back for the first time in a long time. It's gonna be so much fun. Gonna be so good. This is a not, this is a can't miss episode. It's gonna be a classic. Kind of like that I, uh, street fight we saw this week on Dynamite. Holy! Oh shit. my gosh, a seven and a half star classic. <laughs> <laughs> I actually gave it thirteen stars. I think Dave Meltzer was a little. A little harsh on the match. See, if it would have been in the Tokyo Dome, I would have gave it 13. <laughs> but it wasn't, it wasn't even in a It wasn't even inside. Yeah, so it's, it's got a loose point. Uh, we, what we can say is it was better than Velveteen Dream versus Adam Cole, right? That's what the other one was. I was sitting here watching it saying, <laughs> saying God, it wasn't that long ago we watched a, a parking lot brawl that was just kind of weak. And I could yeah. not for the life of me think of who the hell it was. So thank you for bringing that up. So I was like, uh-huh. I know we just seen one not too long ago. No, I think this was probably the most innovative carnage I've ever seen in a parking lot when it comes to professional wrestling. I have yeah, to park- add the professional wrestling because I grew up in Minneapolis, and you, you, if you've been downtown before, you've seen some parking lot carnage. <laughs> right. Yeah, definitely the parking lot brawls in wrestling tend to be letdowns. Probably the best one up to this point, at least on a major scale, would have been the Roddy Piper Gold Dust one from... WrestleMania, I want to say 15, but I could be wrong about that. No, it wouldn't have been 15 because, well, maybe it was 15. I don't know. Yeah. We're going to say 15. Well, you know, it's a good one because every time we talk about parking lot brawls, it definitely comes up. That has to. And, Pasty, you know, it's a good one when uh, we have to bring it up in this week in pro wrestling history. Yes. And this was a big move, but maybe not a great one for poor USA Network. 20 years ago, Pasty, Raw aired its last show on USA Network until its return after a five-year hiatus. Now, dating back to all-American wrestling, WWF had been on USA Network, at least in some capacity, since 1983. WWF had been on in primetime weekly since 84 with Tuesday Night Titans, and on Monday nights since primetime wrestling in 85. In June of 2000, Viacom won the rights, though, to WWF programming in a bidding war 
with uh, NBC Universal. WWF's flagship show would return to USA in 2005, though, where it's remained to this day, which I think they're still doing okay. <laughs> in the show's main event, Pasty, The Undertaker defeated WWF champion The Rock, but it was a non-title match, of course. Some of the other matches of note that night were The Right to Censor, represented Ooh. by Bull Buchanan and The Good Father beating the Dudley Boys. Kane got himself a DQ victory over... Somebody who doesn't exist in WWE history anymore. Oh, Chris Benoit. Sorry. We can say his name. They can't. <laughs> and champions Christian and Edge retain their tag team titles against Too Cool. And ladies and gentlemen, stay tuned because many of these names will be popping back up in our underrated faction Battle Roy- Royale Warfare War Games War Crowns. War Crowns. War Crowns. There we go. I like War Crowns. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, that was an end of an era, like like I'd said on there. Since 85, WWF had been on Monday nights. So, And if you take just that five-year gap away from it, that's, what, 35 years uh, minus five? So 30 years that USA has ran WWEF programming, if you consider to this date. That's crazy. That is really crazy. Impact's getting close. Just not on one network. (laughs) (laughs) Bounced around more than any other promotion. Well, they got to share the love, right? They can't bring all those ratings to just one channel. I tell you what, I do love what they share. Yes. And I love what we have to share, Pasty. And that brings us into our top ten underrated factions. Now, folks, there was some criteria to this. The criteria was... The factions had to include at least three members at one time and at least four members over the course of their lifespan. They also have to be underrated. That means Fabulous Freebirds or the Four Horsemen or the NWO or DX, which everybody knows and sell sell millions of merchandise. Exactly. Bullet Club. They don't count. They They may be better factions than these. In fact, I'd argue they all were better factions than these. <laughs> but people give them their due. And these are the ones that people forget about, think were bad, or just downright never knew existed. Um, so do we want to go least to best or best oh, to worst? Or how do we want to do least it? Least to best always. All right. Least to best, Pasty. We are starting this one off with one that uh, may be a little more familiar to folks listening today. Maybe not the most obscure faction, but I felt it doesn't get enough love, especially when you look back in WWF factions. The Ministry of Darkness. Now, Pasty, I'm only including the actual original Ministry of Darkness, none of that uh, corporation ministry stuff. No, we're talking about the 1998 to 1999 Undertaker ran faction that included Midian, Viscera, Farouk and Bradshaw, Edge, Christian, and Gangrel all at some point. Now, why, you may ask, are they an underrated faction that deserves to be on here? Well, basically, after Paul Bearer turned his back on Kane and rejoined Undertaker at 98's In Your House Judgment Day, Undertaker announced the Ministry of Darkness and a plague of evil that would be unleashed on the WWF. While this was happening, Bradshaw and Farouk formed a team of the Acolytes, 
And the jackal would mention on commentary that his acolytes would usher in an age of tribulation in the WWF. Well, the jackal left and went to ECW as Cyrus the Virus, so that didn't last long at all. And then Farouk and Bradshaw found themselves at a poker table. (laughs) Exactly. But Farouk and Bradshaw, they did bring in an age of tribulation by abducting Dennis Knight and joining The Undertaker, followed by a dark ritual which involved renaming Knight into Midian and renaming the 485-pound Mabel as Viscera as they all joined the macabre faction, followed by the vampire-inspired brood trio, which at that time consisted of Gangrel, Christian, and Edge. It would then, as I mentioned, evolve into the corporate ministry consisting of Vince McMahon as the new leader. (laughs) Although, it was him all along! The whole time, it was always uh, the corporate ministry. It got quite convoluted after that. But they did uh, pick up some championship. They held some gold in their time. The Undertaker was WWF champion one time during their run. Midian actually got a run at the European Championship one time, which I'd forgot about. And the Acolytes twice in their term as Ministry of Darkness members were tag team champions. Yes, indeed. Indeed, yes. God, I love I loved the Ministry of Darkness. It was such a good time. One of my favorite Undertaker, at least outfits also. Maybe uh-huh. one of my favorite outfits, oh, yeah. but probably my favorite Undertaker outfit. It's awesome. It's so crazy to think that Edge, Edge and Christian started with this vampire gimmick and how far they came since then. <laughs> right. <laughs> Most people would be lost right there, I think. Well, and you even look at somebody like uh, Farouk, who was Ron Simmons, the very yeah. first black you know, professional wrestling champion who was a no-nonsense brawler. And he was in the tag team of uh, Doom, um, where they wore the, the, the big masks and, and him, him and Butch Reed. And they were tag champions. Then he came to WWE. They dressed him as some weird gladiator with teal, which was just dumb. <laughs> then he became Farouk, part of the leader of the Nation of Domination. Then the APA, which were just barroom brawlers. Or, well, then the Acolytes, which were these evil demon guys, then the APA barroom brawlers. Yeah, he's he's had a hell of a career. Yeah. Damn. Damn. Uh, so that was our well, number 10 spot. What do you got, Pasty? Coming in at number 9 is really my number 10. Everybody's number 10, really. The Job Squad. I'd call him my number 2. If you know what I mean. In the late 90s, Al Snow found himself perpetually doing the job for other WWF superstars. And, well, he had enough. He joined forces with Bob Harley and Scorpio, and they formed the Job Squad. Winning their debut match against Too Much on Sunday Night Heat went on to assist Mankind winning a triple threat match against Ken Shamrock and Big Boss Man. Later, the squad would find their final missing piece to their puzzle, Dwayne Gill. Dwayne, of course, would uh, later become the legendary Gilberg. Gilberg. Over the run of their career, they've held such illustrious championships as the WWF Hardcore Championship with Al Snow and Bob Holly each holding at one time and Gilberg holding the WWF Light Heavyweight Championship. Yes. In they wonder why that title 19... never got over. <laughs> <laughs> He's over with me. 
<laughs> in February 1999, WWE released Scorpio, and Gilbert was removed from storylines, leaving the job squad with just two members. On Raw, Al Snow wrestled a match against himself before Bob Holly came to the ring in an attempt to prevent Snow from hurting himself. The two would later face off at St. Valentine's Day Massacre pay-per-view over the hardcore championship with Holly walking away with the gold and putting the final nail in the gilded coffin of the job squad. You gotta love it. That was that, that was a not only a great faction, but um, it was when WWE was just starting to allow wrestling terms to be kind of the norm. With yeah. The Rock uh, talking about jabroni, like we mentioned a couple weeks ago. And now job. You know, they didn't used to say job. You didn't do a job. Right. You lost. So it was kind of cool. Yep. Yep. That's, 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 I think that's why I liked it, because it was really WWE, or wrestling in general, letting itself, you know, have that slip. And it's nice. Well, and and let's, let's, let's face it, Al Snow was pretty great. Oh, Bob Holly not was only, pretty great. Yeah. And my favorite part about this is Al Snow f- wrestled a match against himself, and everybody <laughs> wants to uh, bitch about Kenny Omega wrestling blow-up dolls or referees calling invisible men matches. Come right. on now. WWE started this shit. <laughs> oh, yeah. Let's not uh, forget pro wrestling came from the carnivals, folks. Come on. Yes. And, and who could ever forget Moppy? I mean, for real? Gotta love Moppy. <laughs> Gotta love Moppy. <laughs> Well, Pasty, I think that brings me to uh, our number eight on the list. And this is uh, the Dangerous Alliance. I'm going to kind of try to zip through this pretty quickly because this happens to go through three different promotions and uh, almost a decade's worth of of use. So, Lots of history. First, I'm just going to knock out. It was in AWA, WCW, and ECW at certain times. Started in AWA from 1987 to 88 with Paul E. Dangerously, hence the Dangerous Alliance, being the leader consisting of Adrian Adonis, Dennis Condry, and Randy Rose. In WCW, 91 to 93, when Paul E. Dangerously was there again, he brought in Arn Anderson, Bobby Eaton, Larry Zabisco, Michael Hayes, Rick Rude, Stunning Steve Austin, and Medusa. And then, of course, we all know Paul Heyman in ECW. He had to bring Dangerous Alliance back again with the likes of 911, Dark Patriot, Don Morocco, Eddie Gilbert, Jimmy Snuka, Shane Douglas, Sabu, Tasmaniac, and Sherry Martell as the director of Covert Operations. So I'm going to kind of go quickly here. AWA. First of all, why do I think that this is an underrated faction? Just the longevity alone makes it so striking that so many of today's fans have never even heard of this group. Right. Let alone all of the Hall of Fame talent that's gone in many of them. So in AWA in 1987, Polly dangerously formed the Dangerous Alliance with Adrian Adonis along with Dennis Condry and Randy Rose. For those of you kids listening to this, that was the original Midnight Express. Dangerously successfully led Condry and Rose to win the AWA World Tag Championships from the Mid-South legends Jerry Lawler and Bill Dundee. And he also helped Adonis win the AWA International Television Championship. But by late 88, the Dangerous Alliance was gone as Paul E., Condry, and Rose all left the AWA and Adrian Adonis died in a car accident in Canada. 
Then in WCW, with dangerously kayfabe fired as an announcer, he brought in ravishing Rick Rude at Halloween Havoc to take revenge on WCW. Then at Clash of Champions 17, Bobby Eaton and Medusa joined the yet-to-be-named group. And then at the following edition of World Championship Wrestling, which later became Nitro, Heyman, as his Polly Dangerously persona, announced the formation of the Dangerous Alliance in WCW adding Arn Anderson, Larry Zbysko, stunning Steve Austin, as well as Michael P.S. Hayes as their manager, and Medusa as their valet. When Pauly left WCW for NWA Eastern Championship Wrestling in 1993, he revived the Dangerous Alliance, of course, featuring ECW heavyweight champion Shane Douglas, Jimmy Snuka, and Sherry Martell as his director of covert operations. Paul would later add 911, Dark Patriot, Don Morocco, Eddie Gilbert. And then he would actually add in Sabu and Tasmaniac, despite Shane Douglas disagreeing with the duo. Arn Anderson once said in a video with RF video, in an interview with RF video, he had referred to the WCW's Dangerous Alliance as one of the greatest gatherings of talent ever. However, Anderson said that it never became memorable because of WCW's incompetent bookers. And that's probably true. You mean NWO? <laughs> Just saying. So the championships, uh, the original Midnight Express held AWA Tag Champion Gold. Rick Rude held WCW United States Champion. Arn Anderson and Bobby Eaton both held WCW World Tag Championships together, as well as Arn Anderson and Larry Zbysko holding the World Tag Champions in WCW. Stunning Steve Austin got his first big taste of gold in the big leagues as WCW World Television Champion while in the Dangerous Alliance twice. Arn Anderson got the World Television Champion. Don Morocco held the ECW World Heavyweight Champion. Jimmy Snuka, ECW TV Champion. Dark Patriot and Hot Stuff Eddie Gilbert, ECW Tag Champion. And Tasmaniac and Sabu, ECW Tag Championships during the time. So not a bad run. Like I said, almost a decade. That is solid for any faction, because factions are made to die. Too right. Just don't let a, don't let the, the new day hear that. Why, uh, why hasn't Paul brought back the Dangerous Alliance and modern day WWE? I think it would I mean, be we're awesome. We're doing something here with Roman Reigns and, and the Bloodline. I, I like the fact that he's going up against Jey Uso. Yep. Um, I'm still hoping the Usos go heal with him, though, like like as his strongman, you know, so he can sit back and just be the champ. I fear what's going to happen is they're going to split Jay and Jimmy. One's going to take Roman's yeah, side, one's gonna one be bad, one's going to be that's, good. That's just not going to work. Hello. Yeah. That. yeah. And I still only anticipate this going until Brock comes back and Paul Heyman was just using Roman Reigns to keep him under his thumb until Brock did come back for his championship. It was me all along, Roman. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that brings us to uh, number seven, I believe. Number seven. Yes. And while I have may have missed a plethora of amazing angles in the lifetime of Impact Wrestling, I was fortunate enough to tune in to see Ric Flair establish a stunning stable of stallions starting with the phenomenal AJ Styles just over a decade ago. 
And later adding James Storm, Bobby Roode, Kazarian, Matt Morgan, Douglas Williams, Rob Terry, Sting, and the fallen angel Christopher Daniels to the ranks. I maybe even missed a couple of names there. Quite a few people threw Fortune in the <laughs> lifetime of Fortune. Right. And uh, this faction held a fair amount of championships within Impact Wrestling, or TNA, as it was known back in the day. Including Storm and Rude, each holding the TNA World Heavyweight Championship one time. Uh, Storm and Rude also held the TNA World Tag Team Championships. TNA X Division Champions, uh, Williams had it once, Kazarian had it once. TNA Television Champion AJ Styles. And Bobby Roode won the Bound for Glory Series 2011. Now those are some serious accolades, Fat Mac. They are, and that's some serious (laughs) talent. Really. Uh, And of course the group ended in a glorious implosion of ego, as all good things should, just one year into its lifespan. As Ego clashed with Ego and Beer Bottle clashed with Skull, not only destroying Ric Flair's golden creation, but the long-standing friendship between Beer Money members. Fortune may not have been aces and eights, but would you have really had one without the other? I love Fortune, and I know this is where, you know, Ric Flair and Hogan and everybody started coming in and, and kind of fucking up the show. But I saw this shit and I enjoyed it thoroughly. There was, I think people forget there was a lot of good stuff going on at this time yeah. as well. Oh yeah. And look at all of those names on there. Um, I mean, almost all of them are still doing huge things right now. In AEW, what? <laughs> <laughs> some? No, some, not all. Except uh, for Rude, I guess. Rude, they started doing something with him, and he he's still employed with WWE, right? Right. Yeah, yeah, it's just, uh, just not they pinned him. him with Dolph Ziggler, and now Dolph Ziggler gets more matches than he does. Mm. Poor uh, Rude, he deserves better. <laughs> well, Pasty, we'll move on to our number six, which ironically is another Impact faction. Uh, but this one's a little different than most factions people would ever think of, or even remember, because this is a faction that ran from 2015 to 2016, not a long haul. But it was an all-female faction called the Dollhouse. We had Marty Bell, Taryn Terrell, Jade, Awesome Kong, and Rebel all in there at some point in time. Now, Taryn Terrell is the only one that held any real gold during this time. She held the TNA Knockouts Championship twice. But being as it's a women's division, and um, I'm pretty sure they didn't have the women's tag titles. Actually, I know they didn't have the women's tag titles at that time. How much gold can an all-woman group hold when there's only one title? They can break so, it into pieces and, and put it on necklaces. Oh, um, what was... Um, God, which group of, of women did they have the two half of the divas title? Wasn't it the Bellas? Or the... Uh, no, I... No... They might have, but that's not what I'm thinking of. Uh, um, I can't. I can't think of them. It was, oh, Lay Cool, wasn't it? Lay Cool. Oh, there you go. I think yep. Lay Cool had two halves of the title. Yeah. Yep. That was cheesy. Um, 
So anyways, to give you a little history on this. That's Undertaker's wife you're talking about. You watch yourself. I know it. Uh, April 2015, Jade and Marty Bell debuted in Impact Wrestling as a team. And in their debut, Jade was defeated by Laura Dennis via disqualification after Marty Bell interfered. So they started out heels right off the bat. After the match, the duo attacked not only Laura, but also poor Christy Hemme, the ring announcer. Later on, Jade and Marty got involved in Taryn Terrell's defense of the Knockouts Championship against Awesome Kong, helping Taryn put Kong through a table for the victory. After the match ended, Taryn revealed herself as the leader of the dollhouse. Now, during a feud with Gail Kim, Taryn consistently antagonized Gail by not only making direct advances towards Kim's husband, famed chef Robert Irvine, after Taryn Trell successfully defended her title against Gail Kim in a cage match, the trio attacked Gail, and Taryn symbolically broke Gail's ring finger. Weeks after losing the title, Taryn was assaulted by Gail and Velvet Sky, who injured her in the process. So seeking revenge, Jade and Marty attacked Velvet during her knockouts championship opportunity against Brooke Tessmacher. That's when Rebel appeared, acting like she was going to help Velvet, only to attack her from behind, Turning her heel after the attack, Rebel became the newest member of the dollhouse. Shortly after this, people were coming and going, and Awesome Kong was the leader of it for about a cup of coffee. She didn't last long as it. But um, but it was a really good faction with just tons of talent in it, tons of talent. A lot of which are still making good moves today, actually. Oh, yeah. Was the dollhouse before or after Beautiful People? Oh, long after. Long after? Okay, that would explain why. Yeah, I mean, they did They did beef with the beautiful people because mm. the beautiful people reunited um, while they were there. But, yeah. Yeah, this is uh, this was only, what, four years ago now? Okay. So, pretty recent. Nice. Ah, and then we're coming in at number five. With Los Ingobernobles de Japón of New Japan Pro Wrestling. In a landscape dominated by a mass of corporate factions like Bullet Club and Chaos, one might count out the notably smaller numbers of the group of LIJ. With staple members Hiromu Takahashi, Bushi, Sonata, Shingo Takagi, Tetsuya Naito, and of course the turncoat Evil, who now Evil. resides among the ranks of the Bullet Club, the rat bastard. I didn't have to watch long or understand the background of the group to know immediately that LIJ would go down as one of my favorite wrestling stables of all time. I don't even need to go too far into detail as the art completely speaks for the work and the accolades are outright Olympian. Uh, Bushi held the CML World Welterweight Heavyweight or World Welterweight Championship. Naito held the IWGP Heavyweight Championship three times, six-time and current IWGP Intercontinental Championship goes to Naito as well. Uh, Bushi is the four-time IWGP Junior Heavyweight Champion. Evil and Sonata are two-time IWGP Tag Team Champions. Bushi and Takagi are IWGP Junior Heavyweight Tag Team Champions. Evil and Takagi each held once the Never Open uh, Never Open Weight Championship. 
And four-time never open weight six-man tag team champions Bushi, Evil, and Sonata three times, and Bushi, Evil, and Takagi once. These, this is it's it's a surgical, precise faction, top of the line in New Japan, and I just think it's it's a shame more people don't talk about them. You never see people with Lij merch, at least around these parts. You see Fairmont of Bullet Club. Uh, L.I.J. is my jam. And with the titles, I mean, it doesn't even end there. Naito won the G1 Climax in 2017. The New Japan Cup in 2016. Evil and Sonata are your 2017 and 2018 World Tag League winners. And PWI ranked Naito number 5 of the top 500 singles wrestlers of 2020. These men are ranked at the top. And Evil was one of my favorites. Oh, sorry. Hi. I was I was talking, but uh, I was muted, and I feel bad. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, why isn't he responding to me? Oh, I was saying they, they are amazing. Um, I said, um, you know, Evil, uh, Evil and Naito were charter members of the group. So, I mean, and they've all gone on to do such great things with Evil even holding the IWGP World Heavyweight and Intercontinental Champion all at one time. Yes. So, great stuff. Sorry for the little malfunction there, folks. I was wondering what was going on. <laughs> I like to mute it when you're talking so you don't hear all of my crap, and then I, I clicked something, but it must not have been the unmute button. <laughs> Whoops. Well, after that guffaw, I guess I'll uh, move on. <clears throat> Act like nothing happened. Number four on our list. Varsity Club, pasty. This was a group in the NWA from 1987 to 1990. They've held championships such as uh, the NWA World Television title. Mike Rotunda won that twice. He also won the NWA Florida Heavyweight Championship. Rick Steiner is in the group, who was an NWA Florida Heavyweight Champion. You got Kevin Sullivan and Steve Williams, Dr. Death. They were the NWA United States Tag Champions. And Mike Rotunda and Steve Williams, NWA World Tag Team Champions one time and All Japan World's Strongest Tag Team Champions one time. So what is the Varsity Club? Well, the Varsity Club actually formed an NWA by Kevin Sullivan when he recruited Rick Steiner, who was a collegiate wrestler from the University of Michigan, and Syracuse University wrestler Mike Rotunda, 
who some of you might know as Bray Wyatt's father, in 1988. The group would wear the letterman jackets of their respective colleges and brag about their superiority to other wrestlers on the roster because of their amateur wrestling background. Think uh, 1980s Kurt Angle sort of thing. In Rotunda and Steiner's case, their claims were legitimate as they were both multi-time wrestling champions in college. Of course, Kevin Sullivan, it was a, sh- it was a work. He never wrestled in college, but, you know, he was a mouth. Sullivan did win the TV title, though, with the help of his cohorts at Starcade 88. Then after leaving the group, Rick Steiner received a match with who was now TV champ Mike Rotunda for the title. And despite Kevin Sullivan being locked in a cage at ringside, Sullivan had an ace up his sleeve, and that ace was a former opponent, Dr. Death Steve Williams, who was a legit University of Oklahoma alumni who had just joined the varsity club. And in 89, the group added University of Georgia alumnus Dan Spivey to the group. And basically, this kind of came together at a time when the Four Horsemen had disbanded and NWA was kind of trying to fill that void. They wanted another major heel wrestling group, and it did good. I just don't think they ever really gave it the chance that it deserved. Well, it's impossible to fill the shoes of the Four Horsemen. That is true. I mean, it's a... It's never going to happen. This is a great group, and anybody who knows Fat Mac knows that I love just some shoot wrestling, chain down-home amateur wrestling, so I always loved these guys, and this was when I was right into NWA. I was really getting into it. So, um, yeah, this I really, really dug this faction. It's always stuck with me, and I always think it's weird that people don't know about it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess maybe maybe the futures of their careers kind of overshadowed what came from here. But I, mean, I think that's the case in a lot of these. That's why they are underrated. They were better off without the faction. Yeah, that is in true. You know, run. this was before Scott Steiner was around, so there was no Steiner brothers. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Death Steve Williams, uh, he was. this was probably at the height of his career, to be honest. But Mike Rotunda would go on to good, at least financial success in WWF with uh, the IRS gimmick. Kevin Sullivan went on to be head booker in WCW. Dan Spivey, part of the Twin Towers. So, you know, with um, with old broken legs. Sid Vicious, there you go. <laughs> old broken legs. <laughs> that's all I can think of. <laughs> And even uh, and even at a point had uh, Leia Meow as their valet, so you got a good-looking young lady in there too. That always works in a faction. Yes. So coming in at number three, I'm bringing to the table kind of uh, a doubleheader, if you will, the Revolution, as they were known in WCW, or the Radicals, as they were known in the WWF. In the face of old politicians and out-of-touch ways, the youth will rise. It's a tale as old as time, and on July 29th, 1999 edition of WCW Thunder, it was time for a revolution. Feeling slighted by booking despite being fan favorites, Shane Douglas recruited Chris Benoit, Dean Malenko, and Perry Saturn to form a new resistance with storied lineage going back to extreme championship wrestling. By October, Vince Russo became head writer and changed the gimmick of the group to be more anti-American or anti-government. 
In January 2000, Malenko, Saturn, and Benoit, along with Eddie Guerrero, left WCW and went on to be known as the Radicals in WWF and debuted by interfering in a match between Al Snow and Steve Blackman versus the New Age Outlaws, dismantling Road Dogg and Billy Gunn in and outside of the ring. Unfortunately, by the end of 2020, the group sort of drifted apart as each took more focus on singles careers. But how could you not honor the brotherhood that brought us such legendary talent as these men? I mean, yeah, Chris Benoit, he's controversial. But we look at that in two halves. You look at the body of work the man did in his lifetime, and then you look at his incredibly shitty personal life. (laughs) And um, it's ironic that... uh... You have this right after uh, Varsity Club because do you know why do you do you know why they left WCW to go to WWF besides money obviously we know that uh why well as I had mentioned uh, Kevin Sullivan became head booker of WCW and uh, at this time uh, Kevin Sullivan becoming head booker of WCW these guys were getting pushes they were pushing the younger talent. For those who may or may not know, woman was Kevin Sullivan's wife, um, Nancy Sullivan, and they did a storyline where Chris oh. Benoit stole yep, Nancy yep. Sullivan from Kevin Sullivan, and then in real life, she left Kevin Sullivan and married Chris Benoit. <laughs> Obviously, the worst mistake of her life, but that's beside the point. Yeah. So at the time, the feeling was, with Kevin Sullivan being head booker, he was going to um, – um, Chris Benoit was fucked. He was never yeah. going to get anywhere. Yeah. Now, with that being said, the day before they actually left to WWF to show that there was no hard feelings, Kevin Sullivan had Chris Benoit win the WCW World Heavyweight Champion. So he actually left the day after he won the title, never lost the title, Started WCW when he was still technically WCW, or started WWF when he was still technically WCW champion. <laughs> and legend goes, I believe it was Mike Graham from the legendary Graham family down south, who was a booker at the time, had one of the biggest reasons this came about, why they were allowed to just leave out of their contracts. Bischoff just let him leave. He said, if you want to go, go. Because Mike Graham said to Chris Benoit, if you had done to me what you did to Kevin Sullivan and his wife, I would put your head on a pike. And in a company business owned by Turner, which was a major company, and they were in the middle of merging with Time Warner and AOL, you can't really speak to your employees like that. No, so no, instead of uh, getting involved in a lawsuit, Eric Bischoff said, anybody who wants to go could just go. You have my blessing. And he let him go. Yeah. So, <laughs> kind of a fun little backstory. Yes. I love it. And then the, the their championships and accolades, uh, of course, are split between WCW and WWF. And, and now I know why Benoit's World Heavyweight Championship is, is not recognized by WCW, WCW, but is recognized by WWE. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Not only that, but Chris Benoit was also a two-time WCW United States heavyweight champion. 
and the WCW World Television Champion. And in WWF, Perry Saturn was the WWF Hardcore Champion twice. Dean Malenko, the WWF Light Heavyweight Champion twice. Right up Eddie there with Guerrero Gilbert. Perry, huh? That's it right up there with Gilbert. Yep. Better than Gilbert. <laughs> Gilbert only had it the one time, I think. That is true. <laughs> Uh, Eddie Guerrero held the WWF European Championship twice. Perry Saturn held it once. Chris Benoit held the WWF Intercontinental Championship twice. And Eddie Guerrero himself held it once, at least during the uh, lifetime of this faction. Right. Yes. Yeah, such amazing talent. I mean, just so amazing. Yes. Um, you know, you think of, I guess, Shane Douglas and Dean Malenko are probably the two on there that probably didn't ever make it big in either the W any of the major companies. But Shane well, Douglas got, was huge in ECW, yeah. and Dean Malenko, I mean, he was part of WWE for decades, at least behind the scenes. Yeah. I, I used to love Dean Malenko. I, I don't think he gets enough credit. He doesn't. Chris Jericho and, would agree with me. Yeah, well, he doesn't, and I just think, you know, the light. And you said it right there with Gilbert being a light heavyweight champion. WWF at the time was never going to do anything with a, a, a light heavyweight guy, a cruiserweight guy. They're not doing it to this day either really much. So, And Perry Saturn might not have been much throughout his career, but he had one hell of a body. He was a Finn Balor body type. Oh, and he was probably the best on the mic out of all of them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe Shane Douglas. And, you know, what he did in ECW, obviously this was before even his WCW tenure, but with the Eliminators, him and Cronus, oh, my God, that's one of my one of my favorite. That's an underrated tag team for a list is the Eliminators, Perry Saturn and, and Cronus. There you go. Um, God, they were just amazing. So, yeah, very good stuff. I like it. Up next, we're at our number two spot, Pacey. We're getting close to the end. And I got one of my favorites of all time, which uh, really flies under the radar, and I think mostly because it is a Ring of Honor faction, Age of the Fall, pasty. Now, this has all sorts of members that you're going to know the name of that you didn't know were going to be big back then. Brody Lee, who ended up being Luke Harper in WWE and is Brody Lee in AEW now. Delirious, who was working as a trainer in WWE. Jimmy Jacobs who's done everything and was a head writer in WWE. Joey Matthews, you know, as a interviewer from WWE. Mischief, if you know anything about Shimmer Wrestling or women's wrestling, she's one of the best ever, especially back in the day. Necro Butcher, hello. Tyler Black, you might know him as Seth Rollins. Zach Gowan, the one-legged bastard. Love that Leva, guy. Leva Bates, Blue Pants. Yes. And uh, Mr. Milo Beasley, who nobody knows. It's <laughs> <laughs> so, a really uh, bad name. Yeah, Milo Beasley. Mr. Milo Beasley. You gotta love it. So here's the deal, Pasty, folks listening at home. For months leading up to Ring of Honor's 2007 return to Chicago, which was the upcoming Man Up pay-per-view, there were these cryptic messages all over the social media. Now remember, this was around 2007, so it wasn't like it was now. They had their blogs and their website, and these messages kept coming on as 
Project 161. Now, this upcoming Man Up pay-per-view in Chicago would be the 161st Ring of Honor show. Coincidence? We're going to find out it wasn't. At the show, Jimmy Jacobs, the returning Necro Butcher, and a debuting Tyler Black violently attacked the Briscoe brothers after a brutal ladder match they had already had with Kevin Steen and El Generico. You probably know them, folks. Jay Briscoe was hung upside down from the rigging that's used to, you know, hoist the titles up. And as the bloody Briscoe's blood dripped down onto Jimmy Jacobs' white clothes and into his mouth, (laughs) Jacobs, the zombie princess, announced the beginning of the Age of the Fall. Now, Zach Gowan, Delirious, and Joey Matthews would join next as the stable dominated and was the primary focus of most of the shows and pay-per-views at this time. At Vendetta 2 show, again in Chicago, Mischief interfered on behalf of Tyler Black, blinding Austin Aries with her green mist, and was officially made a member of the stable also. Then, when we go to Ring of Homicide 2, Jimmy Jacobs defeated Austin Aries in an anything-goes match after Delirious and the debuting Brody Lee came to assist him. Later on in that evening, the team of Brody Lee and Delirious would defeat Cheech and Cloudy, and Tyler Black would go on to defeat Jerry Lynn. I like how they can use Cheech but not Chong. That's funny. (laughs) Now, within all of the ROH havoc that they were part of, this faction was also represented by members in Full Impact Pro, Pro Wrestling Guerrilla, and All-American Wrestling. So they got around the indie circuit. The accolades that these folks held? Well, Tyler Black was a Full Impact Pro World Heavyweight Champion. Jimmy Jacobs, IWA Mid-South Light Heavyweight Champion. All while they're in the age of the fall. Tyler Black also had the All-American Wrestling Heavyweight Champion. Jimmy Jacobs would get the Mr. Chainsaw Productions Wrestling World Championship, which I had never heard of till doing this research, but I had to add it on here because that sounds awesome. Mr. Chainsaw Productions Wrestling World Championship. <laughs> Good shit. Jacobs also had the uh, AAW Heritage Champion. Mischief held the Shimmer Champion one time while in this, one of many of her reigns. And uh, Jimmy Jacobs and Tyler Black would be Ring of Honor World Tag Team Champions twice during this. Ring of Honor, they won the Ring of Honor World Tag Team Champion Tournament, Pro Wrestling Guerrilla World Tag Team Champions, and All-American Wrestling Tag Team Champions. I mean, this is just a who's who of who was going to be up-and-comers. Like, this was this is what you looked at to see the future of wrestling back in 2007. Yeah. That's not so... This was fun. I gotta. I, I have to go back and watch some of this stuff. This sounds. This sounds real interesting. Yeah, especially go on YouTube and, and just find the debut of them with uh with uh, Jay Briscoe hung up from the rigging and just oh with Jacobs covered in the blood. It's pretty badass. <laughs> sounds like it. Uh, and uh, coming in at number one. It's 2020, and the year of our Lord, the demo god Y2J. An arena full of lunatics and their children are foaming at the mouth for more WWE Attitude Era goodness. 
when all of a sudden the air is pierced with the sound of shrill sirens and fire alarms, and from the Titantron emerges five figures in white button-down shirts and black slacks. Enter the right to censor. Of course, right to censor was started by Stephen Richards. After, uh, I think he single-handedly started coming out covering up women after Braun Panties matches, uh, taking away hardcore uh, items from matches, just trying to clean up an awful, terrible, rampantly ran Attitude Era WWE. Later then, or no, I think Bull Buchanan was with him at the beginning too. But they later destroyed and reformed both the Godfather and Val Venus, and the Godfather was known as the Good Father. Ivory soon joined, and for a mere minute, the cat was a part of the faction as well, just so they could show her naked, and then she left WWE. I was going to say, make sure you specify that it's the cat, Jerry Lawler's ex-underage girlfriend, not her wife. <laughs> Not the cat, Ernest Miller. Somebody better call my mama. (laughs) Cat with a K, not cat with a C. (laughs) And while they may not have held the most championships, the reason they are at our forefront is they completely changed the landscape of WWE. Uh, You know, the Attitude Era had to come to an end at some point. And Stephen Richards had the plan to put that into fruition. This was probably one of the more impactful factions of my younger years. Just because it was like, whoa, what is this? I hate them so much. And as I grew older, I was like, I love them. It was good. (laughs) It was good. Because you go back, you watch Attitude Era Wrestling and... and you better have some real rosy colored glasses. <laughs> yeah, it's it's not as good as you remember. <laughs> the soap opera stuff is pretty fun. About fifty yeah. percent of it. Fifty percent of it's pretty cringy, also. Mm-hmm. Uh... Yeah, I think this is great for a number one spot. I can't think of any, especially because you really don't hear about them. And I maybe it's because you know we've talked about so many of these factions, how they went on to such great success. None of these guys really ever did after their tenure in the RTC. Yeah, yeah, no this was this was kind of the the calling grounds for a lot of these uh rather storied careers. Yeah, but as you mentioned they reinvigorated the Godfather's character which was getting pretty stale into the Good Father. Val Venus, you know, they brought out Sean Morley Ivory, I thought Ivory just did a such a good stuck-up pompous bitch. Yeah, yeah, beyond Steven Richards, she's by far the standout of the group, I think, in my eyes. Uh, But Steven Richards, I loved him so much in this role, and it bothered me. It bothers me to this day that he didn't have any more of a run beyond this in WWE. Yeah, Steven Richards was always the, uh, pretty much anywhere he was, he was always the could have been. Uh, I mean, he had the look of a superstar. He was, he was, I'd say, better than than decent on the mic. He was good in the ring, but even in a place like ECW, I mean, he never got over that hump. He was upper mid card in ECW, and that was the highest he ever got in any company. 
Yeah, uh, Buchanan, the good father, held the tag team champions one time, and Ivory was the WWF women's champion as well in the run of this faction. The group disbanded after losing, as I said earlier, a four-on-one handicap match to The Undertaker on the April 26, 2001 episode of SmackDown following a massive defeat at WrestleMania X7 with every member losing their individual matches on the card. I mean, right to censor couldn't last forever, but they, they, they played an important role in the history of what would be the future of, well, WWE. Yeah, truly. Boy, I think that I think that's a fantastic list there, Pasty. Yeah, I can't wait to see the hate mail we get. So just to run down the list for everybody one more time, number 10, Ministry of Darkness, 9, Job Squad, 8, Dangerous Alliance, 7, Fortune, 6, Dollhouse, 5, L.I.J., Los Ingobernables de Japón, 4, Varsity Club, 3, The Revolution and the Radicals, together as one. Two, Age of the Fall, and our number one underrated faction of all time, Pasty. Right to censor. Good stuff. Yes. Woo, that was fun. We haven't done a top ten for a while. It's always fun. Yeah, it's always good to have it back. But now it's time we snap into this week's edition of the Savage Sentinel. Well, Pasty, uh... Our, our good friend John Pollock of Post Wrestling reported Dio Madden, Mia Yim, Shane Thorne, and Mercedes Martinez, as well as Dominic Dijakovic, are Retribution's internal roster. The unmasked men. Meltzer has also confirmed this report. All of these wrestlers have been appearing in promos in the last couple weeks on Raw, with both Martinez and Dijakovic being used in actual speaking roles, just altering their voices. On Monday's episode of Raw, the group did a promo where they talked about the machine and how everyone is bad for liking the machine. They ended the promo with a number of extras appearing by wearing the same apparel as the group, but it has appeared that it's not going to be as many people as they show. It's going to be this core group right here. Which sucks, Batman. It's stupid. <laughs> Because this goes all the way back to the hacker, like pff, almost a year ago, when yeah. Dominic Dijakovic and Keith Lee are putting on some of the best matches I've seen in, in, in quite some time in NXT. So, like, what I don't get, like, Dio Madden, yeah, okay, I was called up to the main roster to do commentating, and then they sent me back. I'm mad. But nobody else has a reason to be mad at main roster WWE. Unless they're going to be like, oh, you're going to ruin us. But they're not going to say that. And if that's the case, does Keith Lee join them? Because that would be awesome. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like like even though I love them putting these uh, young, they're not young upstarts, but in WWE's mind, they're these young upstarts. They're veterans, of course. I like the idea of them having a a major angle. But I, I hate to say it, but I almost feel like you need somebody who's a main event guy to be behind this to give them a little bit of... To, to give them some authenticity, to give them some legitimacy in the fans' eyes, at least. Yeah, and it's been weeks um, since since they were doing, like, pitch-shifted promos where people had corrected it to hear that it was Dominic and, and Mia Yim. <clears throat> so, 
So, so we've known about this for a while. I'm wondering if, if what the, the swerve isn't with this is that, that you know, some, some big superstar is, is actually at the head of, helm of this. Because there, there has to be, right? It was me all along. Dominic Dijakovic is good, but he's not a guy to run a faction. And if you've he's seen any of these promos they've been cutting, he's terrible on a microphone. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I don't want him to be the leader of the group. I, I really don't want any of these guys being the leader of the group. I don't. I don't want this to be a group. At least, at least not with this kind of thing. Like, I don't understand why you're hacking and being angry about things WWE did to you when they haven't done anything to you yet. The thing there is, should be people who are pissed because they got let go. You know what I mean, or something along that line. From what we know about WWE, they probably don't realize where this story is going either. You know what I mean? They're probably just. Go, doing it as they go we had they had nothing to do with these people so all right let's throw them in here we'll figure it out when we get they're there. gonna botch it dude they're gonna it's gonna be wade barrett's the leader no way <laughs> <laughs> i'm afraid i got some bad news for you i'm retribution i think i think mia yim's the only one who walks away from this with any kind of a career afterwards um, I mean, Mercedes Martinez is so super talented, but as far as in WWE's eyes, yeah, I think she's probably too old. Yeah, um, same with Dominic Dijakovic, right? Like, he, he's in good shape, but is he really usable? Yeah, I mean, at least he's a male. I know for women, yeah, she's 39 years old. I mean, she's super young, and she's got probably a good five years left in her as as an amazing wrestler, but I don't think WWE looks at it that way. Yeah. I don't think I've ever seen Dio Madden in a match on NXT or anything. So. I don't think I've ever seen Dio Madden. I don't know. It'll be interesting. Uh, yeah. Well, there's better news in the forecast, Fat Mac. As Rocky Romero dropped a bombshell on the 700th episode of Talk is Jericho. God, we got some work to do. <laughs> right. He announced, we're working on an animated series. It's going to debut on... Instagram. It's called The Gimmick. <laughs> if it's the first time you've ever heard about it, it's actually phenomenal. Oh, We're does that mean AJ's with... going to be in there? <laughs> yep, it's a hit. It's a nudge. <laughs> We're working with an amazing team. They're called Toonstar. It's an amazing studio out in L.A. And basically, we're doing South Park meets wrestling, but South Park already did that. Yeah, they did a great job. It was awesome. It's insanity. All the insanity from Talkin' Shop Mania. We're bringing it to you in animation, as a cartoon. It's unfiltered, it's raw, it's real, and it's pretty crazy. And it couldn't possibly be worse than Camp WWE, right? That's true. <laughs> I had so much hope for that. It was good for a couple episodes. Yeah. No, I'm, ex I'm excited to, to see what it is. I don't know... You know, with it being uh, on Instagram, is it like, you know, a, a seven-minute show? Is it a 15-minute show? Is it a half-hour show? How does this work? I'm assuming it's going to be like shorts, you know? Yeah. But, which but I'm that's, okay that's cool. With. Exactly. Yeah. Just a few little skits here and there, like like they had with Talkin' Shop of Mania. It's just like mm. watching Talkin' Shop of Mania in, you know, maybe ten different settings. And I think the point is, is like they don't got any ground to stand on with it starting off, but maybe doing this on Instagram, maybe they'll get picked up by Cartoon Network eventually who does 15 minute shows. You know what I mean? Great. I could see them on Adult Swim. It'd be awesome. Yeah, or definitely. Comedy Central even. Yeah. <clears throat> well, Pasty, on that same Talk is Jericho interview, Doc Gallows as Sex Ferguson 
announced that Talking Shopamania 2 will happen on November 13th at 10 p.m. Yes. He says Friday, November 13th, Talking Shopamania 2. I'm announcing it live right here on Talking Shop via Talk is Jericho. I'm coming for too bad. It ain't going to be an eye for an eye. It's going to be a ball for a ball match. Oh, it's going to be so good. I want to know, like, what's he going to do to make the ball come out that wouldn't make a ball come out? You know what I mean? Like... <laughs> right? <laughs> the, thing, the thing about this is, if when you listen to the, uh, to the podcast, which I recommend everybody does, he's really drunk when he's saying this. Yeah. And... Um, <laughs> yeah, and both uh, Machine Gun Anderson and Rocky Romero, they're both, I can't tell if they're playing that they didn't know this was what it is or if they're legitimately like, we didn't know about this. So maybe he was just drunk and threw it all out there. Maybe it's not set in stone for Friday, November 13th. <laughs> they better get to work, though. Um, even I got, out of time. I got my $15. <laughs> right? <laughs> so it's like, but, but it's awesome. Either way, I, I'm glad that they're they're excited for another one and and we are too oh yeah oh yeah i i could do this you know what every other month or, or at least quarterly that'd be awesome oh, for sure <clears throat> the recent trailer for season two of disney's hit star wars series the mandalorian has been released the series returns to disney plus on october 30th the trailer features a cameo from sasha banks Banks is shown wearing a Jedi-like robe in the trailer. Her character's identity has not yet been announced. Near the end of the trailer, the Mandalorian appears to be attending some type of galactic combat competition taking place inside of a ring. Former Ooh. MMA fighter Gina Carinaro also stars in the series. It's going to be real hokey, isn't it? Oh, it's going to be so bad. I hope not. Oh, I, I, Me too. I'm excited. <laughs> I hope uh, not. I, I actually just finished The Mandalorian probably like last month. <laughs> oh, geez. It took, me, it took me that long to watch eight episodes, but I, I love it. I, I think it's great. It is really I good. It's, it's well done. It's got the right amount of cheese to still feel like Star Wars, but it yep. feels... I love that it feels more like a Western. You know what I mean? Like, I'm, I'm really excited, though, to see what they do with this kind of like MMA-style fighting thing for... I don't know. It's going to be... It's going to be interesting. One thing's for sure: people are going to tune in and watch it. Oh yeah, whether it's good or bad. I mean, it's going to people are going to see it. Uh, something that people may not see. I don't know. <laughs> it was a bad segue. Matt yeah. Riddle dropped his petition for a restraining order against Candy Cartwright, also known as Samantha Tavel, real name, who previously accused him of sexual assault during the Speaking Out movement earlier this year. Riddle Wait, she's a wrestler? Yeah. I didn't realize she not, had two not like a big, Not like a big-time wrestler. Yeah. Riddle and his lawyer accused Cartwright of cyber-stalking after the original accusation was made earlier this year, which led to the restraining order petition. Now it's been revealed that Riddle and his lawyer filed to have the petition dismissed in Orange County, Florida, on Monday, September 7th, just 36 hours before a court date to hear a motion to dismiss. According to documents revealed by David Bixpin. Cartwright's lawyer has filed for dismissal, claiming a lack of evidence, among other issues, with the petition. It was noted that Riddle's Riddle's voluntary dismissal drops the case entirely. If they had proceeded to the hearing scheduled for the second week of this month, 
then if it was a successful motion to dismiss on an anti-slap grounds, that's strategic lawsuit against public participation, that may have resulted in Riddle being forced to pay legal fees and court costs to Cartwright, cover all of her expenses. Candy Cartwright says she'll continue to fight back and speak up, posting, I would like to thank Times Up LDF for helping me with these difficult months and helping me push back against these claims. I also want to thank everyone who supported me in this. I appreciate every single one of you. So the news here is he had it dismissed so he didn't have to pay for her shit. That's what it sounds like, but I feel like the story might not be over. <laughs> I hope not by a mile. Uh... Then on Thursday, Riddle's lawyer, Daniel Rose, issued the following statement. On July 14, 2020, our client, Matthew Riddle, only sought a cyber-stalking injunction against Samantha Tavill. The court set it for hearing as they found probable cause for the matter to be heard. It was represented to our client and our firm that Miss Tavill had moved on with her life and our client would no longer need to continue with the cyber-stalking injunction. Our client then dismissed the cyber-stalking injunction without prejudice, which left all of his legal remedies open and allowed for closure. Today, our client has elected to file a civil suit against Ms. Tavill for her continued false and defamatory statements that her client sexually assaulted her. No further statements will be made on social media on this matter at this time. (laughs) So now he's suing her. Good stuff. I think he's going to fall from this eventually. At least the divorce is in the books, I think. Oh, hands down. I'm surprised it's not already. It may already be a separation. They're just waiting for everything to be done and legal and clean. Who knows? Mm -hmm. But uh, that was kind of our shortage sentinel, although... Now we have a lot of comings and goings, and they are coming, but not a lot have been going, Pasty. Maximum climax. Yeah, there's there's actually a lot of really good on the coming and going, and we're going to start it off with um, some news coming from Fightful Select that Impact Wrestling has offered Deanna Perrazzo a full-time deal with the company. The length of the deal is said to be at minimum two years with increases in compensation over the years. Perrazzo had arrived in Impact Wrestling a month after her release from WWE, and she went on to immediately win the Knockouts Championship, defeating Jordan Grace at Slammiversary. The same Fightful report also noted current Impact Wrestling Tag Team Champion Alex Shelley is working without a deal, as is EC3. It's unknown if Impact has offered the two of them deals or if they will continue to work on a per-appearance basis. Both great talents. I hope. Uh, I hope they're getting. I hope wherever they go, they're happy and get paid. Oh yeah. Uh, but Fightful was busy this week, Pasty, because more breaking news from Fightful says that James Storm is apparently a free agent at this point. His contract with the NWA has expired, and he is now free to show up wherever he likes. It was also reported that there was a provision in James Storm's original contract, which allowed him to control his own bookings outside of the NWA. Even if he was still with the NWA, he would have been handling his own schedule. So basically, any NWA dates he would have to make, but anything that didn't interfere with NWA, he could go to AEW, WWE, Impact, Ring of Honor, whatever. 
That'd be at least awesome according to, see to him this. Go to WWE on an off day, <laughs> right? <laughs> that would be laugh at nice. Bobby Roode and, and and then go back to NWA. Hit him with a beer bottle. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, Will Hobbs is all elite. AEW announced the signing Wednesday afternoon. Hobbs has been competing on AEW Dark over the past few weeks and picked up his first victory two weeks ago. The news of Will Hobbs joining AEW was well received by several members of the AEW roster. Jim Ross, Jungle Boy, Sammy Guevara, Isaiah Kennedy, and Peter Avalon are among the wrestlers who tweeted their approval. Does their approval really matter? I don't think so, but he does get my approval. So yeah, yeah, oh yeah. I'm Looking forward for to that Hobbs. six man next week. And pasty, if it rhymes with Will Hobbs, it's got to be Jeff Cobb by gum, and he has been one of the top free agents in pro wrestling this whole year. He had notable runs with Lucha Underground, Pro Wrestling Guerrilla, New Japan Pro Wrestling, and Ring of Honor. He was even briefly aligned with Chris Jericho's inner circle in AEW. He has teased in recent months that he signed with a major promotion, but would not reveal which company he had committed to. On the latest Wrestling Observer Radio, though, Unky Dave Meltzer confirmed that Cobb has signed with New Japan Pro Wrestling. Jeff Cobb will enter this year's G1 Climax Tournament. That's one of several signs that New Japan Pro Wrestling is his new home. And the general feeling is that Cobb's goal was to use Ring of Honor as a stepping stone to get to New Japan originally. Yeah. Seems to be the way people used to do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Major League Wrestling announced today the signing of L.A. Park Jr., the youngest son of L.A. Park. Both his dad, L.A. Park, and his brother, Iho de L.A. Park, also wrestled for MLW. On Thursday, Court Bauer tweeted about L.A. Park Jr.'s signing. He also teased more new faces will be coming in leading up to the restart. That's probably the most times I've heard you say L.A. Park in 30 <laughs> seconds. <laughs> Just a lot of L.A. Park in there. <laughs> so their faction should be called Parks and Rec with W-R-E-C-K. Uh. Man, I just started rewatching Parks and Rec, and I'm on season two, and now that it expires in, like, 17 days. Oh, no. It's like, it's like eight, nine seasons. I'm like, well, I'm not even going to keep watching it now because there's no way I'm getting that much in. I was so pissed because I haven't watched it for probably like a year and a half, two years or something. And I was like, oh, yeah, man, let's let's watch this again. It's fun. Oh, the fuckers. Oh, speaking of fuckers, PW Insider broke the news on Friday that Melina is returning to WWE. It said that the current plan is for her to work on the Raw roster and she could be back as soon as next week. But the former women's and divas champion has shot down those reports through a lengthy Facebook post. On Friday night, Melina noted that the reports make her heartache because she loves her fans and does not want them to raise their hopes, only to be disappointed. However, Melina did not rule out the possibility of returning to WWE at some stage. Yeah, okay, Edge. She's going to be there next week. Yeah. Um, (laughs) (laughs) The next part is part of this news media. I don't know why it's on a separate dot. Basically, just, eh, we could skip that whole thing. <laughs> just go, go on to old, old Jeffrey, pasty. Jethro. Yes, Jeff Hardy recently signed. Oh. Why? <laughs> can we skip this one, too? <laughs> I know, right? 
<laughs> but Jeff wishes he could. <laughs> maybe he just Ray maybe did he it. I his, might as well. Maybe yeah, he that's right. And, uh, <laughs> he didn't know what he was signing. <laughs> Vince is like, here's some drugs. Now can I have your autograph? Right. <laughs> he signed a new contract with WWE, folks. Uh, it was also confirmed that his No More Words theme song will return once WWE is able to have fans at shows again. <laughs> wow, that's that's that was what he... My song's got to come back. Okay, if we get fans back, you can have your song. I'm sorry, Jeff. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, Hardy said the return of the fan favorite theme song was a part of his new contract. <laughs> You know, Ray had to get his son into the company. <laughs> Jeff just had to have the theme song. Right? <laughs> I feel like he could have bartered a little more. <laughs> when we do get in front of a crowd again, that was a part of me reciting. I was like, if we get in front of people again, I'd like to use no more words again. Because I know y'all own it. So... That was the deal for me resigning. It's going to be the ticket when we get back in front of crowds. Yeah, we're going to get back in front of crowds, and I'm going to have no more words. That's going to boost me even more to hear that music again. Just because I think the Hardy's Boys music is just for Je Matt and Jeff Hardy, not just Jeff Hardy. So fun. <laughs> <laughs> He sounds like a kid or something. I think like, he's more broken than Matt thing. after the concussion. Fuck. Yeah, I know. It's, um, <laughs> woo. Is that that twin brother thing where like one yeah, gets I hurt and the other one? Yeah, it's like the old Corsican brother. <laughs> Matt didn't get a concussion. Jeff did. Oh, Tony Khan was right all along. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Jeff, Jeff, Jeff. Jeff. Well, Pasty, that may have been a, a blow to the Hardy family, but WWE got a blow to their family, their corporate family, that is, because they lost a major ally at NBC Universal this week as Chris the Cucumber. Oh, I'm sorry, Chris McCumber. Yeah, no, pause here wrestler, for a second because I swear to God, WWE just partners with and hires people that Vince likes the names of. Cause the name. Seaman right? Canyon. <laughs> Give me that give me that cucumber guy. Who does he work for? Let's go to them. I like that cucumber guy. Oh, so so Chris the Cucumber McCumber left the company after 19 years. Deadline reports that the Cucumber, who worked as president of Sci-Fi and the USA Network, notified his team in an internal memo on Wednesday. His departure comes after a major reconstruction restructuring at NBCU under Mark Lazarus, chamber of NBC Universal Television and Streaming. The Cucumber is considered to be the person who spearheaded the negotiations between NBCU and WWE, which led to their current big money deal. The Cucumber oversaw some of the most profitable years in both USA and sci-fi's history, even after linear ratings began to drop. Deadline also pointed to how the Cucumber was the point person overseeing USA's long, successful partnership with WWE. The Cucumber is the one who developed USA's signature brand campaign, Characters Welcome, and rebranded Sci-Fi in 2017. It was noted by Dave Meltzer on Wrestling Observer Radio that the Cucumber has been a liaison between USA and WWE for many, many, many years now. 
Well, I mean, 19 years, the cucumber became a pickle. I'm telling you. <laughs> he sold his soul to the devil, and the devil was dill. The whole character's welcome campaign was just a thing to try to put WWE over, too. That was stupid. <laughs> stupid. Well, it's because the old cucumber was running things. Well, that that comes as a major injury to WWE with their connections, especially in the face of low ratings. Yeah. And that brings us into this week's injury report. There was some speculation that Mickey James may have suffered a soldier injury in the finish of Monday Night Raw. During the finish, the referee called for the bell while Mickey was down in the Oscar lock. The call came from out of nowhere, and it seems to confuse everyone involved. It was then announced that the referee ruled that James could not continue the match. It's a screw job. Oh, my gosh. The referee could, <laughs> the referee could be seen checking on Somebody Mickey call the cucumber. <laughs> This is this is backlash for cucumber quitting. Exactly. We'll show them. Yeah, but the ref was seen checking on Mickey at ringside during the post-match in-ring angle between Zelina Vega and Asuka. Mickey James is reportedly fine and did not suffer soldier sh- shoulder injury. It was reported by Brian Alvarez on Wrestling Observer Radio that multiple sources we're saying the referee simply screwed up the finish. She was selling the move too much, and she he thought she had dislocated her shoulder. <laughs> so he called the match. But he was just wrong, and it was too late to go back on the call. Why, WWE goes back on ref calls all the fucking time. Right? That's why they shouldn't go back to live. <laughs> if they had that tape, they could just redo the finish. Right. But I am glad that she wasn't hurt. <clears throat> Mickey's a, a hell of a wrestler and has always deserved more in WWE than she's ever got or ever will get. And uh, at the end of here, our reports, we got Booker T, who is the latest pro wrestler to reveal that uh, he had tested positive for COVID-19. But he noted that he was tested for the virus in June <clears throat> and never got his results back. And that he received a call this week from the Center of Disease Control that he test that his test came back positive. Um, by the time he was already <laughs> over it, Booker reassured that he is fine now, saying, "I've had three tests since then, and they all came back negative. I know what I went through for a couple weeks. I had headaches, I had night sweats, I lost my taste and smell for two weeks. Thank God I was smart enough to quarantine from my family." God, that's rough. <laughs> June. We that's have like testing. <laughs> Too much testing. But at least he was smart enough. I, I give him credit for actually quarantining himself. I got a personal friend of mine right now whose kid is sick <clears throat> and has some symptoms that could be COVID. And they're just quarantining the whole family. They're like, screw it. We're just quarantined. You know, we haven't got the until we get the test results back, we're just not doing anything just staying at the house it's what you should do it's not difficult to be decent it is if you're american (laughs) damn it the un-americans should have been on the list damn it (laughs) where are they come on christian oh pasty with that i think uh the cucumber is out man 
Yeah, the cucumber's out. The pickle is in. And Beef Sticks Podcast will be back next week for your listening enjoyment. Thank you for tuning in, and make sure you check us out on Facebook.com forward slash Beef Sticks Podcast. Send us all your hate mail because our underrated factions didn't add up to your underrated factions. And why the hell is right to censor number one? Right. Let's hear it. I want to hear it. Give us the hate. We thrive off it. Yes. With that being said, uh, we'll see you next week, folks. Bye-bye.